Good morning. Good morning to you here. Good morning to you online. It's good to be together. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6 one more time. Actually, not one more time. Three more times. We've got today, next week, the week after, and then we're going to get into a new four-part series, and then we're into Advent, if you can believe it. Uh, it's that close. So Ephesians 6, verse, starting at verse 10, and I'm just going to read to the piece of armor we're focusing on today. Beloved, listen to God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, there was a young man who was very curious and longed to understand many things. He desired to understand how the lake he lived by never emptied, but remained full of sparkling water. He dove down to the bottom of the lake one day to see if he could learn anything, but it taught him nothing. All he saw was mud and fish. But then he hiked up to a tall mountain nearby, right to the top, and saw streams and rivers flowing into the lake. He had found the right vantage point to learn what he desired. On another day, this young man became curious about the cud of cows and how it came about that they could chew the cud. He opened up the cow's mouth one day and looked inside, but it taught him nothing. All he saw were tonsils and dirty teeth and a giant sandpaper tongue. But then a cow died one day, and the young man took a scalpel and cut the cow open and saw its four stomachs and how they led back and forth by way of pipes to the mouth. He had found the right perspective to learn what he desired. On yet another day, this curious young man became curious about what the moon was made of. He had heard that it was made of cheese. He shot an arrow up one night high into the sky, but the arrow just fell back to earth without even a crumb of cheese on it, and the man learned nothing. But then this man had a flash of insight and fashioned a tool, a telescope, and looked through it and saw that the moon was very beautiful and made of rock. He had found the right tool, which gave him the right vantage point to learn what he desired. And this, as this young man grew and became older and challenges came to him, the struggles common to humans, and he saw wiggly threads of gray hair winding around his scalp, he became curious about something else. He wondered about the meaning of life, his life. He wondered about the meaning of history, all history. Where were we all coming from? Where were we all going? What was a man? What was a woman? Why do we die? What's the problem with the world? What's the solution? He sat quietly in the forest for a whole year, 
hoping to discover the truth. Yet he learned very little. But then one day, as the man sat there, another walked up in a long cloak and dropped in his lap a leather-bound book called a Bible, the treasury of the Christian faith. And the man read it, and read it, and read it, from beginning to end, twice, three times. And then the man understood, understood the meaning of life, the meaning of history, what he was here for, where all of it was going. For the first time, he learned the way of wisdom, how to live, how to love. He had found the right tool which gave him the right perspective to learn what he desired. Beloved of God, it is axiomatic. It's foundational. For every object of inquiry, there is an optimal tool for looking at that object which will help to reveal it. And when it comes to how to live one's life, what is the meaning of life? Scripture asserts, and millions who have gone on before have testified, that there is no better tool, no better, better vantage point than the vantage point of faith, which is to say looking at and living in the world through the lenses provided by Scripture, by the story and teachings of the Bible. It's the right vantage point because it's true. It showcases the true story of the world, the meaning of our lives. It is a trustworthy witness because it is, we believe, the revelation of God by God. And what Paul wants for us as a community of faith, as a community rooted and committed to the story and teachings of Scripture, and as a community who is engaged in a struggle, a wrestling match, with the powers and principalities of this dark world, is indeed to take up this faith, the story and teachings of Scripture, like a shield, like a trustworthy shield, so that we can extinguish the fiery darts, the fiery arrows of the evil one. Now, I confess it would be tempting to think of this image this morning of the shield of faith in merely defensive terms because normally when we think of a shield, we think of a defensive weapon. And indeed, a shield is a defensive weapon. Of course it is. It protects you from incoming projectiles. It protects you from lancing blows. And that is certainly true here. And yet, I do not think that this is the only image we are to have of the shield of faith and not even the main one. I think rather the main image we are to have of the shield of faith is that it is to put us in this world with an aggressive stance. The image of this shield of faith is actually, in addition to being defensive, sure, it is an aggressive image. We aren't merely as the church of Jesus Christ to hunker down to weather the storm and wait until the storm passes in our world, but we are to go on the offensive. There's three reasons I believe that this shield is offensive. In the first place, there is the word in Greek used for shield here. There were different shields that the Roman army would use. Some of them were small and nimble, some of them were medium-sized, and then there were others. The Greek word used here for this shield is of a particular type. It is a thuraos. This word derives from the word thura, which means door in Greek. This shield, in other words, was absolutely huge. It would go from top to toe. It was long and oblong. The soldiers would move together with this shield, shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, 
and into the battlefield of the enemy. One scholar likens this thuraos shield, this door-like shield, to the modern-day equivalent of a tank. To be sure, a tank will protect you from incoming projectiles. It is defensive, but a tank enables you to be mobile, to go into enemy-occupied territory, and with swinging artillery, to take the enemy on their ground. So too with this thuraos. It was an offensive weapon. Also, what Paul says in our text about how Christians are to use this thuraos. We are to go and extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Thoreos, these long, oblong, door-like shields could have leather on them or wood on them which would be soaked in water overnight. Indeed, if a projectile was coming in that was flamed, it could let it fizzle out. But this is not the word Paul uses here. We Christians are to go out and extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one as it were those that are in our world where we find them. The image here is more like the church as a military fire brigade who go out with the shield of faith, with the story and teachings of scripture, and put them on the fires that the devil has lit in the world in order to deprive them of oxygen and take them out from doing their reckless damage. (laughs) Or once again, to demonstrate that this is an offensive weapon that we are to use, you have a text like Zechariah 12 and verse 8 where we are told in that text that God himself is a shield, a thuraos, to the people of Israel. And what is the consequence? When God is your thuraos, the consequence, the text tells us, is that the feeblest in Israel, the feeblest are going to be greater than King David himself. King David was Israel's most celebrated warrior. He's the one who slayed Goliath. He is the one who went out with a band of mighty men, a very small band of mighty men, and defeated the thousands to bring Israel rest on every side so that they had a place that was hospitable for life. The feeblest in Israel, because God is their thoreos, will be mightier than David himself. Indeed, what we have here, friends, is a picture of the church going out into the world and dousing out the lies that the devil has placed there, which are causing death and destruction, which lies always do. That is why we are to go out with a shield of faith, with the stories and teachings of Scripture, with the truth, which as we said at the beginning of this series, the second message, the power of truth is the power of exorcism. And again, we're getting a similar kind of image here. But the active role of the church to be a balm where there is hurting and suffering because of the lies of the devil in the world. We are indeed to be God's military fire brigade. In his magisterial book entitled Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, the once atheist Tom Holland shows, and by the way, this book is positively magisterial. It's incredible. Holland shows over the course of 500 pages and with heartwarming story after story of what's happened in history, He shows how Christianity has radically changed the world over the last 2,000 years to give us the world that we have today. From Christianity's insistence that there is such a thing as objective truth important enough to die for, to its belief that a better world should actively be 
fought for, to its belief that all humans have an intrinsic dignity and that this belief must be reflected in our common life and society together, to the belief that the body matters just as much as the soul, to the belief that suffering can be redemptive with all of these beliefs, this faith that we trust in and more, Christianity shows Holland on page after page, chapter after chapter, has utterly changed the world. And in fact, these beliefs constitute the basis of most of our assumptions today in Western society about what it means to be human and how we should live together. Christianity, in other words, which is to say Christians who are possessed by the story and teachings of Scripture, put out fires. The fires of slavery. The fires of treating women as either sex objects or as ways of having um, legitimate children only treated that way. Christianity put out the fires of rank inequality, the fires of super spirituality, the fires of believing that this life is all there is and on and on and on, all sorts of fires by going out with the shield of faith. And our job today, people of God, is precisely the same. Now, if you were to ask me where I believe the greatest fires are burning today or have just begun to burn and where, therefore, we Christians have great opportunity to witness to the truth of Scripture and by God's grace put these fires out or at least work towards putting them out in our churches and society and our larger communities, I would point to about 10 different fires that I believe are burning strong in our world and causing currently great damage, incredible damage. I'd love to talk this morning about the fires, for example, of materialism and consumerism that says the good life is the life where you can acquire stuff. He who has the most toys when he dies wins kind of idea. I'd love to talk about the fire of hedonism that says the good life is the life where you can experience the maximal amount of pleasure, normally physical pleasure. I'd love to talk this morning about Gnosticism which says that the good life is the life where bodies don't need to matter and what we do with our bodies don't need to matter. I'd love to talk about the fire of New Ageism, which says that the good life is the one that is entirely self-constructed and can be self-constructed so you can invent your own reality. I'd love to talk about Nowism, which says that the good life is the one where there is no future and especially no judgment. I'd love to talk this morning about the fire of relativism, which says that the good life is the one where there is no truth, but only individual truths. Um, There is no truth except that truth that there is no truth. I'd love to talk this morning about individualism, which says that the good life is the one where individuals can be mostly focused on themselves and thus live mostly for themselves and not according to deep and profound commitments to family, within marriages, to church, to communities, to state, and to God. And I'd love also this morning to talk about what I might coin Facebookism or screenism, this fire in our world today that says that the good life or the acceptable life or the wise life is the one where we can spend the majority of our time buried with our heads in screens 
a lie that I learned last week in a rather disturbing way. I think I had about three hours sleep after watching this video. It's costing millions of children their emotional stability, their ability to socialize, as well as their lives. There is a correlation, a direct correlation between suicide among young people, particularly girls, and the rise of social media and the hours that they're spending on the phone. And it's not only a correlation, scientists are beginning to think that there is a causal relationship that these devices are causing it. Um, And for the adults in the pews here this morning or at home, I encourage you to watch on YouTube perfectly for free a documentary called Um, Childhood 2.0, it was the one I watched, and I say for adults, screen it first before you let your kids. There are some images in there that I wish they wouldn't have put on, but they're dealing with the reality of pornography and the accessibility and the anonymity of it all. Anyways, it very much stirred me up, and so I'd love to preach a message on Facebookism or screenism this morning and how we Christians might go out and begin to put this fire out in the world. And by the way, it's related to um, an anti-Gnostic stance on the world and a recovery of the importance of bodies. Anyways, I'd love to talk about all these isms and how the biblical story, our faith, addresses them in order to bring life. But because time is limited, let me just focus on one ism in the time that I have remaining. And I believe it is the biggest ism, which in fact creates and causes all of the other isms and so is the most important ism that the church must deal with in the world today. And it is the ism called atheism. And and when I say atheism, I mean a non-belief in the Christian God in particular. I would want to argue for a particular theism that is a Christian form of theism. But when we talk about atheism, which if you don't know is um, the belief that there is no God. That's the basic idea of atheism. But there's really two types of atheism. The one is called a philosophical atheism where you determine that there are insufficient, there's not sufficient reasons for belief in God in a cognitive or rational sense and therefore you suspend belief. You do not believe there is a God. You think it's the only way to be an integrated rational person. That's philosophical atheism. But then another form of atheism is what we might call practical atheism. And it's the more prominent kind, particularly in churches, and where people will say with their mouth, I believe that God exists, but then not live as though God exists. It's practical atheism. And both atheism philosophically and practical atheism are indeed fires lit by the devil that cause great damage in our world. Why should we consider these arrows of the devil? And why should we consider it perhaps the greatest arrow leading to all the other isms? And I think, friends, it's because according to Scripture, saying that there is no God or even simply behaving in that way leads first to personal breakdown, moral corruption, and then to societal breakdown and moral corruption, which leaves us in society at the end of the day to be a people who will tread on the downtrodden and those who are marginalized and those who are most vulnerable. In other words, atheism, practical or philosophical, leads to a breakdown of the individual and society that will bring about societal chaos. This idea is clear in a psalm like Psalm 14. If you want to read that later, I can't, I don't have time to exposit it. 
Psalm 36, which goes along the same direction and in the fundamental tenet of the wisdom literature, which says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom in the wisdom literature is how to live a flourishing life. The beginning of that is a fear of the Lord, which means a reverence of the existence of God and also an attentiveness to how he has revealed himself on the canvas of history, which would be by way of Scripture. The reason that atheism leads to moral turpitude, as we might say, and a breakdown in society is because once you have removed an objective, transcendent standard, which all people need to live by, what you are left with is the individual needing to be, in effect, their own God. Deciding for themselves, and this is Genesis 3, this is Genesis 2 and 3, deciding for themselves what is the good life and what is the way to attain the good life. And so, you can breed a situation where there is selfishness. I will decide for myself what is good for me, even if it means trampling on other people. Look at the logic in Psalms 14 and 36 and you will get this. Atheism, practically or philosophically, will lead to an unraveling of the individual of society altogether. We in the West today do not believe that our atheism will have practical consequences. That unmooring ourselves from our Christian past as a society won't touch us. And beloved, I must tell you today, besides being proven untrue in an unarguable way in both Germany and the Soviet Union, which were either philosophical or practical atheists or both, and proving it in terrifying ways, it will be proven in our day, too, as we continue this experiment in society as a whole, and I think we're already seeing some pretty grave signs of it. Besides the incredible moral decay, everybody just does what is right in their own eyes as long as it so-called doesn't hurt other people or at least other individuals right beside them. Besides the incredible moral decay we already see around us and the rank selfishness, let me point to just one item. One item. This concept of human rights. We in the Western world have a very, very strong and abiding um, notion of human rights, which says properly that each and every human being, no matter their strength, their age, their race, their ability, each and every individual human being has intrinsic dignity, inherent value, and must therefore, on the society level, be given equal rights as other human beings have them. Our notion of human rights in this way is built on, it comes from, and one just needs to read Tom Holland's book to get this, on the insistence, the faith, that each and every individual was created by a God who gave them an intrinsic dignity because he created them in his image. It's something that each of us as individuals are given by God and therefore it can't be taken away by a lack of strength, by a lack of intellect, by a lack of power. You have it intrinsically. Our notion of human rights in the West is the foundation, therefore, of democracy, 
the foundation of women's suffrage movements, the foundation of LGBTQ movements to find equality today. It is the foundation of the law so that all have to play and live by the same rules. It's the foundation of our society. But what happens, friends, when you cut the roots out from underneath the tree? Naturally, the tree is going to fall to the ground. It's going to decay and it's going to die. I believe already, since we've cut out God from the equation of human rights, we're beginning to see a decay in this notion of the intrinsic dignity of the individual, no matter what their strength, their developmental uh, position, and the like. There's huge slippage. We see this, for example, with the unborn, who aren't considered individuals with rights, because they're what? Why aren't they? Because they're weak? Because they're vulnerable? Because they're not fully formed yet as human beings? But if that is the logic, then what do we do with others who once born find themselves weak, find themselves undeveloped, find themselves vulnerable? Are their rights then too gone? We see it with the aged, who can be killed by us now in compassionate ways, so long as they want it. Or, if they can't answer for themselves, maybe if their family wants it. We see it also, I think, in the ascendancy, the uprising of what some are calling now collective identity politics, where people are referred to not, notice, as sovereign individuals who have unique, inalienable identities and histories and must be treated as individuals, but they're thought of and referred to instead of on the basis, first and foremost, of their group identities. Being a part of this class or that class of people, this group or that group of people, and to be valued or treated in proportion to their class. And just watch where this leads us. The Soviets began their reign of terror, first of all, by throwing off belief in God. They were confessionally and evangelistically atheistic. And then they continued their reign of terror by identifying two groups of people and throwing all individuals and judging them on the basis of their membership in either one of these groups. Either you were bourgeoisie, part of the professional class, or you were proletariat, part of the working class. The former group were labeled evil and dealt with in kind, and the latter class were considered righteous and gained control. And some 60 to 90 million people, nobody agrees on what the exact figures are except that they were unbelievably high, 60 to 90 people were either murdered by rifling squads or thrown into the gulags, prisons, In other words, once God was tossed out and a theology of being created in the image of God was also thrown out with it, and then people were thought of according to their group identities foremost, the whole concept of whom human rights went out the window with it, and a bloodbath ensued. And we think we're immune today from this chain of reactions here in the West. Don't be so sure. Have you heard the rhetoric in the wider world lately? It is scary. But in a world who knows not God, it's not surprising. Scripture has already told us and shown us how this might work. So one of the biggest areas I think that we must urgently take up the shield of faith and douse out our fires in our world is right here. 
with atheism, the big one, whether of philosophical or practical sort, and whether in the church or in the world, because it is so incredibly deadly. And we might respond, well, that's great, that's wonderful, Ed, but how actually do we deal with this inferno of atheism that is actually probably growing in steam in our world? How do we deal with that? How do we up, take up the shield of faith and go out into the world and deal with this? Well, I think there are two ways. One, as you may have guessed, is philosophical, and the other one is practical, and it is the practical that is more important. Philosophically, I think that we Christians have been given tremendous, wonderful, God-given resources today in people like William Lane Craig, in people like the now late Ravi Zacharias, who will help us to understand the basic arguments for the existence of God, and in wonderfully winsome, heart-touching ways. And we should learn these. Peter said that we should always be ready to give an answer for what we believe, the reasons for what we believe. And we can equip ourselves. And sometimes the Holy Spirit comes alongside these arguments and brings people to faith. Because the arguments are strong. And because you need more faith to disbelieve in the existence of God than to believe in him. But then the second thing that I think we as a church can do and must do is in order to fight atheism in the world is actually to be and ever more become the living presence of God in the world by living in the Spirit. To have the presence of God within us. Because the greatest argument for the existence of God is a human being fully alive. One that looks like Jesus. It is the most compelling argument to encounter holiness. My professor Bruce Waltke, former professor Bruce Waltke, used to tell us that the way that most people come to faith, and either in your family of origin or afterwards, most people come to faith because they've had an encounter with holiness. Somebody who is indeed filled with the life of God and carries that presence with them into the world. Rod Dreher, in his recent book entitled Live Not by Lies, tells the story about a group of 20 to 30 priests who were rounded up one day by the KGB, taken on a sled into the forest, made to stand in a long row. And a soldier, one of the KGB officers, would come by and stand in front of the face of the first priest, and he would say, is there a God? The priest would say, yes, and he would, be showing, he would be shot point blank without any mask, without any blindfolds, right in the forehead. And then he would move to the next one and say, is there a God? This priest said, yes. All 30 priests, in answer to the question, is there a God, said yes. And what a testimony was their surrender and their willingness to suffer because they were a presence of holiness there. What a testimony the truth of God. Rod Dreher shares another story about a man named George Kalkiu, an Orthodox Christian and medical student who had been thrown into prison for his faith and who in 1985 was exiled to the USA where he became a priest. Excuse me. George tells the story of a man he met in the Russian prison before his exile. This fellow prisoner's name was Konstantin Oprasen. George and and, uh, Constantine had been placed in a cell together along with two other men. There were four men per cell. 
And the thing about this was that Constantine had tuberculosis and was terribly ill. His lungs were constantly filled with fluid. He coughed up blood constantly. And because of extreme torturing that he had received at another prison, he was also a physical wreck, not able to move, and thus not able to um, use the bedpan by himself, not able to feed himself, not able to move himself in and out of bed. And George, therefore, did everything that he could for Constantine, moving him on his bed, helping him wash, etc. And in and through all of this, George says the amazing thing, the utterly revolutionary thing for him and his two other cellmates was this. They said, and I'm going to quote here at a bit of length, Constantine was like a saint. Every word he said to his cellmates was about Christ. Hearing him say his daily prayers had a profound effect on the other three men, as did simply looking at the flood of love on his face. Constantine would not curse his tortures and spent his days in prayer. All the while, we did not realize how important Constantine Opersan was for us. He was the justification of our life in the South. Over the course of a year, he became weaker and weaker. We felt that he had finished his time here and would die. And that's what happened. He died. After he died, George continues, every one of us felt that something in us had died. We understood that such as he was in our care like a child, he had been the pillar of our life in the cell. Looking back on that drama half a century later, George then says this, um, that knowing Constantine revealed to him the light of God. When I took care of Constantine Opperson in the cell, I was very happy. I was very happy because I felt his spirituality penetrating my soul. I learned from him to be good, to forgive, not to curse your torture, not to consider anything of this world to be a treasure for you. In fact, he was living on another level. Only his body was with us and his love. And then these lines. Can you imagine? We were in a cell without windows, without air, humid, filthy, yet we had moments of happiness that we never reached in freedom. I cannot explain it. Beloved, Father George and the others were transformed by Constantine's presence in their lives and had a happiness that they had never achieved on the outside in freedom because in Constantine's face they saw the face of Jesus, the presence of holiness, the greatest evidence for the existence of God there is, and the animating force today that will put out the greatest fire burning in our world. May God give us strength. May he dress us up with the shield of faith with which to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And may he do it in our day. There is no reason he can't. For indeed, he has given us the right tool, which can give us the right perspective to live and witness in the way that God desires unto his glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.